Habakkuk. Or I guess if you're from the south, Habakkuk, 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 whatever, whatever I said. <clears throat> Last week we went over the first two chapters, uh, so we'll give a quick recap of that. I know some of you sun- studied that in Sunday school this morning. Quick recap of Habakkuk 1 and 2, and then we will move into chapter 3, uh, which is Habakkuk's answer to what God has told him. So the book of Habakkuk, <clears throat> just to give you some background on it again, written around 600 B.C., uh, so we're talking about like 2,600 years ago, uh, give or take, right before Babylon. If you guys know history, of course, Israel was split into two nations, uh, the nation of the north, Israel, and the nation of the south, Judah. Israel, the northern country, has already been taken off into captivity a couple hundred years earlier uh, uh, by Assyria. So Judah is left. Now Judah has this wickedness that is rampant in it. And so uh, in the first uh, three, four verses of Habakkuk, we see Habakkuk asking God, God, do you not see what is going on? Do you not see the injustice going on in our nation? Do you not see what is happening, what our people are doing? And God answers not the way that Habakkuk would have wanted, right? He answers, yeah, I see. Now you look and see. And see that I'm sending this wicked nation, the Chaldeans, as scripture calls it, which is the Babylonians, uh, into invade you. And they're going to take you into captivity. And then Habakkuk doesn't like that answer. So he starts asking, God, what are you go- why are you going to punish a less wicked nation with a more wicked nation? Right? And he starts playing the holier than thou game. And then God tells him simply, the righteous shall live by faith, right? We don't play that holier-than-thou game, right? This church doesn't play that holier-than-thou game. We will not play that because we just sang holy, holy, holy to the one who is holier-than-thou, to the one who is above all else. And so Habakkuk, this question that so many of us deal with, God, can you be fully sovereign and can you be fully good? How do those things intermingle? We cannot fully explain that. But we trust it. And so God tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he gives them this beautiful picture in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? And he gives this great end time picture when Christ will come back and everyone will know, will see how great our God is. And then at the end, we ended last week in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Where God says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Our God sees and our God is in his temple. Our God is on his throne and our God is fully good. Sovereignty and goodness. He was the one raising up the Babylonians. He is not responsible for their wickedness. Right? That is a mind-blowing concept, but we have to we have to make room, like we talked about last week, we have to make room in our mind for thinking that God is fully sovereign and controls all things, yet is fully good. I mean, Acts Acts chapter four, I think, is the perfect testament to that, right? Where where they're saying you guys killed Jesus, right? The Pharisees, the Jews, you guys killed Jesus, yet you did everything that God's hand predestined you to do. God's goodness and God's sovereignty are inseparable. They're two concepts that go together well. And Habakkuk helps us understand and trust 
those things. And then we see after God gives Habakkuk hope and also these five woes to the Babylonians, saying, I will destroy them, we see Habakkuk's answer in chapter 3. So before we read, let's pray. King Jesus, God, help us to look to you, not like Habakkuk playing the holier-than-thou game, as if we're more righteous than others, but God, seeing our depravity, seeing our wickedness, and yet looking to your grace. You know everything about us, and yet you love us, and I don't understand. I don't understand your full sovereignty and your full goodness, but I trust it. you got to pray that we would trust it and that we would respond like Habakkuk in chapter 3. So God, as we read this song of worship, this prayer of worship, God, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see your majesty and your beauty and leaving this place satisfied in you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 3 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Shigianoth is uh, basically an unknown musical term. We're not exactly sure what it means, but it was some kind of uh, musical term. It appeared also in the Psalms. And so we know that this is a prayer and also a song. And of course, the end of chapter 3, uh, the very last line says, To the choir master with stringed instruments. So, so this is a song prayer, a worshipful song prayer that... Habakkuk is praying to the Lord and talking about the Lord here. <clears throat> and we're going to see some deep, amazing theological things that should cause us to be satisfied more and more in Jesus. So let's go to verse 2. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he's saying, I've, I've heard of these reports, right? I've heard about you. And then he goes on, so what has he heard about God? God came from Teman and from the Holy One from Mount Paran, which are terms referring to Sinai and the south. So our minds, when you think of Sinai and the south, should automatically go to the exodus from Egypt, right? So he starts to recount what God does from Egypt. He also says, your work, O Lord, do I fear, right? Going back to, to uh, verse 2, right? He's still frightened, there's a sense in which we fear God. Right? We, we, we've always heard that explained like, yeah, we fear God, but we're not afraid of him. Then why so often do we see people falling down? Isaiah, as he's standing in the throne room looking at God, falls down in fear. Joshua, as God appears to him, falls down in fear. Moses falls down in fear over and over and over again. We see this because of how great and glorious and grand our God is. He is a God to be feared. And so now Habakkuk is recounting the Lord's work and also seeing that the work he is about to do. Right? He said, I've heard what you're saying. You're going to send Babylon in to destroy us. And I fear that work. And he says, in, in the midst of the years, revive it. What he's saying is, do your work, Lord. This is totally different from his tone in chapters 1 and 2, right, where he's questioning God, and he has heard what God is going to do and how great God is, and God over and over and over again say, trust me, Habakkuk, trust me, Habakkuk, and he says, Lord, do your work in the midst of the years, make it known, do what you're going to do, in, but in wrath, remember mercy. He appeals to God's mercy. It's always a good thing for us. Appeal to God's mercy. That is our only hope. 
And then, like we said earlier, he begins to recount the Exodus story. God came from Teman and from the Holy One, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So from the south, from Egypt, from Sinai, Selah. So we pause. We, we think about these words that he is saying. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So here, think of uh, when Moses is on Mount Sinai. If you guys uh, recount Exodus chapter 19, where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and God says, hey, no one touch the mountain. Not even if your ox even touches the mountain, it's going to die. Right? And Moses goes up on this mountain to speak with God, and there's this uh, this huge pillar of fire, and this, these clouds are coming down, and lightning and thunder is hitting on this mountain. This is what Habakkuk is re- recounting in a very poetic way when he says his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels so then verse 5 he moves into the plagues that God sent against Egypt so as he's praying he's recounting the works of God right saying God you sent these plagues against Egypt to destroy them and to free your people these are these plagues that God used through Moses verse 6 He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Go back to verse 6 where it says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. If we start thinking about verse 6 and 7, we think about God coming, bringing the Israelites out of Egypt into Mount Sinai. And then as they go into the promised land, they start to conquer these nations. What nation had these walls fall where the mountains were shook? Jericho, right? We start to recount the Lord's, what he's doing is recounting in a very poetic, prayerful way, recounting the work the Lord has done. And they said, I saw the tents of cushion and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So he's reminding himself right here as he's trembling, right? Habakkuk is trembling as he's seeing Babylon going to come in and conquer, conquer Judah. He's recounting the time when Israel made other nations Tremble because of the Lord. This worshipful, worshipful prayer. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. So now he begins to talking about water. Think of all the times when God used water to bring his people into the promised land. The Red Sea. We can automatically think of that. The splitting of the Red Sea and God controlled the water. The Old Testament belief was only God could control water. This is why it's so significant when Jesus goes and calms the wind and waves because he is proclaiming with that action, I am God. Only God, it was believed, could control water. And so as Moses, God uses Moses to split the Red Sea and leads his people through that. He also, remember, they split the Jordan River and his people are led through that and they go into the promised land. Or if you recount uh, the time when Debron and Barak in Judges 4 and 5 defeated the Amorites 
What did God do to help them defeat? If you remember, this huge army of chariots was coming in to defeat them, and Deborah and Barak prayed to the Lord, and God sends rain down and basically makes a swamp so that the chariots get stuck and the Israelites go through and just slaughter the Amorites. Excuse me, Sisera had the wrong army. The Sisera chariots in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And then God even threw hailstones down, right? You see uh, that where it says, verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. As the Sisera army was running away, or as the Amorite army was running away with Joshua, God threw these hailstones down and started raining hailstones down. We see Joshua's victory there in verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. And this is where the Amorites were defeated, right? When when Joshua's army is fighting the Amorites, and Joshua says, Lord, make the sun and the moon stand still so that I can defeat your enemy today. And he, they defeat them, slaughtering them. And that's when God, as the Amorites are running away, God begins to throw hailstones. The scripture even tells us more Amorites died from God's hailstones than from the Israelite army. God's winning this victory. God's the one bringing his people into the promised land. And this is what, this is what Habakkuk is reminding himself of in this prayer, right? He starts it off in the third person and then he moves into second, into the second person as he's telling God that God, remember you did this. And all the while reminding himself of this work. Verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the wicked, of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. Essentially, he's using these poetic words reminding how God just swept through the nations and brought his people, his covenant people, into the promised land. Right? You're the one who did this. You went out for the salvation of your people. You crushed the head of the wicked. You pierced with his own arrows the house of the wicked. The Lord is the one who saves his people. This is what Habakkuk is almost telling God this, right? As he's singing this song, he's, it's like this praise and this reminder to himself that Habakkuk is, is reminding himself that God is the one who wins the victory. You know what Habakkuk is doing here? He's preaching to himself. This is what we mean when we often say we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We remind ourselves of the work that the Lord has done as Habakkuk is frightened. I mean, look at verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Right? He is frightened. Habakkuk probably had a family. This wasn't just like some far off nation that was going to maybe destroy some other city. This was a nation that he could hear and see. He heard reports of that was coming to destroy him and his family. This is a wicked, wicked nation. The Babylonians were known for cutting off lips and ears and noses and leaving people like that. They were, they were known for immense torture. And this was the people who was coming in. And Habakkuk's looking and waiting for these people to come in and conquer this nation. And even though he's frightened, he reminds himself, he preaches to himself, God, your covenant with your people is where I'm finding my faith. You is where I'm placing my faith. He's reminding himself of the Lord. 
And this is what we do. We remind ourselves of God's word. We remind ourselves of what he has done. I love the way D.L. Moody says this. He said, I used to think I should close my Bible and pray for faith. But I came to see that it was in studying the word that I was to get faith. We remind ourselves of the work that Christ has done and is doing and will do. And that, and that is where we find our hope in Christ, the one who is the living hope in heaven. Jesus, our firm foundation. He's preaching to our, to himself. And likewise, we must preach the gospel to ourselves in our prayer, in our singing, in our reading. To each other, we remind ourselves the pain and the suffering of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. And the, the beautiful thing about a prophecy uh, is God can, of course, use it however he wants. While Habakkuk is reminding himself of the past events of the Exodus, he's also pointing us forward to the new Exodus when Christ would come, right? Like we often talk about here, as we see over and over and over again, a theme throughout Scripture. It's all ultimately pointing us to Jesus. This is really about Jesus' future work at the same time while also being about the Exodus. Let's go back back through these verses. Go back to verse 3 with me. It says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Think about the transfiguration. When Jesus goes up onto this mount and he is transfigured, and who comes down to be with him? Elijah and Moses. The one who stood on Mount Sinai with God came down to stand on another mountain with God. He came to stand, and Jesus is transfigured, and the disciples, what do they do? They fall down in fear. And this is the picture that we see what was to come, Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Jesus went up on this mountain to show he was God. This is the greater Mount Sinai. As Jesus goes up and is transfigured and shows, I am God. Verse 5 and on. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the, the tents of cushion in affliction. And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? On your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. So think of Jesus' power over creation as he comes and he heals the sick. He starts to reverse the curse, heals the sick, opens the eyes, eyes of the blind, turns the water into wine, right? I mean, Moses turned the blood, the water into blood. Jesus turns the water into wine, right? Starts to reverse these things, showing, bringing in the new exodus over and over and over again. He calms the wind and waves. The wind and waves, the same wind and waves that would destroy the Egyptian army, Jesus calms. Be still. He's the one in control. Jesus himself is God. Jesus shows this over and over and over again. And Habakkuk is pointing to this beautiful truth while he's preaching to himself of the past, pointing forward. Look at verses 10 through 14. The mountains saw you and writhed. 
The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Think of Jesus' death on the cross and the amazing things that begin to happen. The earthquake comes up. The deep gave forth its voice as bodies were raised from the dead. The account in Matthew tells us, right? This is pointing to what is happening on the cross. The sun and the moon stood still in their place right? as darkness covered the land. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spears, Jesus took the wrath, took the blow of, of the wrath of God for us. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And we, Christians, if we are in Christ, are part of that. We've been grafted in. And Galatians 3 tells us we are now the sons of Abraham. If you are in Jesus, you are part of the anointed people. And every promise is yours. For all the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's pointing us to Christ. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, as Jesus went to the cross. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That should take us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The prophecy that's pointing us to when Jesus would die on the cross and crush the head of the serpent. He crushed the head of the house of the wicked. He crushed Satan. Satan is like a headless snake writhing around in some last moments of attacks. But his power is completely under God's control. Jesus is in control. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. It's pointing us to Christ. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour in secret his own arrows. Let me read Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing. So becoming like us, partaking of flesh and blood, above us, being fully God and fully man, but becoming like us. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You know what Jesus did? He took Satan's own arrows and destroyed him with it. Satan brings death. This is the whole reversal of the curse that is the theme from Genesis to Revelation. Satan brings death through Adam and Eve's sin, and then Jesus uses death, his own weapons, to destroy him. And so now, as Colossians 2.15 tells us, Satan has been disarmed. So while, yes, he is a, a roaring lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour, he's a toothless lion disarmed by Jesus, on a leash by God. He is in control. Christ is in control. He is disarmed. He has destroyed death. And he took Satan's own arrows and defeated him with it, that he, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. This is pointing us straight to the cross, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And then verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. And one day, our Savior will come back on a horse, on a white horse, riding in victory, the sword coming out of his mouth, destroying the wicked, and bringing all of his people, all those in Christ, to him. That's the day we look forward to. Habakkuk preaching to himself, 
from the old exodus is really pointing us to the beauty of the new exodus, what Christ would do on the cross, and what Christ will do when he comes back. And so, Christian, this is what we do on a daily basis when you feel defeated and down and like Habakkuk, like the whole world is crashing down on you, like there's injustice that is rampant. And we cry out and say, Jesus is in control. I'm going to trust you. I remind myself of what Christ has done. Though a certain virus going around scares many of us, we trust in Jesus and say, he's in control of the coronavirus. We trust in Jesus and say, he's in control of whatever happens in this nation. He's in control of whatever happens to my children, whatever happens to my spouse, whatever happens to my family. Christ is in control. He is in his holy temple, and he's fully good. We preach that to ourselves. He died for me. He loves me. He stood in my place. He conquered Satan's sin and death for me. And he will come back for me one day. Remind yourself of that, Christian. Then the daily troubles of this life begin to fade away. And the wise are questioning, like Habakkuk, those questions, those wise begin to fade away to the one who holds all of our questions and wise in his hand. That's Jesus. We will not know all the answers. And by the way, Habakkuk, as he goes on and says, verse 16, again, he says, I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He says, I'm frightened. He is scared. Christian, this is something that that we have to get over in the church, pretending like everything is okay. Everything is not okay with Habakkuk here. We come into this building, we put on a mask, and we say, I'm fine. Habakkuk, being brutally honest, is just saying, I'm, my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. In other words, my bones are aching. I'm hurting from the inside out because of what's about to come. We don't know much about Habakkuk, but... It could be as he's looking at his young children knowing that they're going to be tortured and go through suffering and pain. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He's waiting for the justice of the Lord. And by the way, we we tend to think that he would see that justice or we tend to think that everything's going to be okay on this world. There's a high probability that Habakkuk never saw this justice to come. We have to remember this book was written about 15 to 20 years before Babylon would invade Judah. So if Habakkuk's already an adult, you've got to add another 15 to 20 years onto that. And then Babylon wouldn't be destroyed by the Medes and Persians for another 50 years. They wouldn't return to Judah for another 100 plus years. So he for sure never came back to Judah. But there's a likely chance he never even got to see Babylon fall. So this waiting for God's justice, most likely in Habakkuk's eyes never happened until he entered the gates of glory to see his Savior. And that's the greater justice. That's the greater beauty. That's what Habakkuk was looking to. And again, we don't walk by God's, by our timing. We walk by God's timing. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And then look at verse 17 and 18 and 19. And these three verses give us some of the most beautiful words of worship in all of Scripture. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, 
The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. He's saying, God, you're enough. Though none of these things will happen, Though the fig tree may not blossom and give us food, nor fruit beyond the vines and give us wine, nor the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's saying, even though everything may be stripped away, Christian, ask yourself that question. Can you say, even if the stock market should crash, or the price of oil should plummet. Or there's no food on my table. Or I get cancer. Or I get the coronavirus. Or this nation falls apart. Yet I will rejoice in the Christ who has saved me. Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your satisfaction? Anything that you say, if this is taken away, I wouldn't serve Jesus. Or if this is taken away, my life wouldn't be complete. Is your God. Is your idol. Can we, like Moses in Exodus 33, I think this is a, a beautiful text that correlates right with this. Exodus chapter 3, can we answer like Moses when God tells him in verses 1 and one through 3, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. What he's essentially saying there is go up, have the American dream. Have your dream career and your dream house and your dream family and your dream car and your dream salary. Have an easy, comfortable life, but I will not be with you. He was going, he was going to do the work. He was going to send an angel to drive out these nations. So you guys are going to get this, but I'm not going. Examine your own heart. How many of us would take that deal? Just examine your own heart. God, yeah, I don't want you. I want these things. It's real easy to say no, but so many of us live life as if we say yes. As if all those other things are more important. Can we respond like Moses in verse 12 where he says, Moses said to the Lord, See, say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you not your things or your gifts, know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go up with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory. Is that our heart's desire? 
Can we say like Habakkuk, even though God, I won't get these things, even if my house should be taken away and my car and my career and my family dies, like what happened to Job, yet I will rejoice in you. Is Jesus enough? Do we want Jesus or do we want stuff and happiness and the things he can give us? Is Jesus your God or your ATM machine? Is Jesus your, your king or your genie? What do you find yourself praying about the most? For God to work in your heart and be glorified in your life or for him to simply heal your sickness? I'm not saying it's wrong to ask for those things. Jesus tells us to. But so often the things we ask for, the things we think about, the things we talk about are our idol. Are those the things that we're focused on? And being satisfied in those things, being satisfied in the olive in the fig tree or the fruit on the vines or the olive tree. It's like drinking poison. Being satisfied in anything in this world is like drinking poison. We may think it's good for us. Yes, this money is good for me. Even though it's taking your heart away from Jesus and we drink that poison and we say, yum, Lord, may I have some more. And then we get angry when he doesn't give us that poison. Right? So often we hear Jesus, you, you say you won't give us a snake when we ask for a fish or, or a rock when we ask for bread. So often we ask for snakes and bread and rocks. We get angry when God says no. Your heart is captivated by money and you're asking for money. No. Jesus is in control. Don't drink the poison of the satisfaction of this world. Trust him and the one who loves us because he proved it on the cross. I love the way R.C. Sproul says it when he says, to know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is indeed my ultimate consolation. We find ultimate consolation, ultimate comfort, ultimate hope in knowing that Jesus knows every sin about us. Everything we've done in private, everything you've looked on your computer screen, everything, every thought that you've had, every word that you have said, and yet still loves you and died for you and drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Why should we not be satisfied in him? Why should we be satisfied in other things? Be honest with yourself. And I'm on, I want to be honest with myself. I know I have idols that take my heart away from Christ. I want Christ to do whatever it takes to remove those things from me. Because God loves us too much to just let us Continue finding joy in lesser things other than himself. He loves you too much to let you find joy and satisfaction in your career or your family or your home or any other amount of things. That he will even use pain and suffering to cause us to shift our eyes from those things to him. That's what he did here with Habakkuk. To where Habakkuk's questions turn into praise. As he says, God... I don't understand, but I'm going to live by faith. And Habakkuk would never see those promises fulfilled here on this earth. But I'm sure if we could ask him today, it would be all worth it as he looked into his Savior's eyes in eternity and now has been worshiping Jesus for 2,600 years. It's worth it, Christian. We don't look to the things that are unseen, but to the things that are, look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Because this momentary light affliction is not worth comparing to the weight of glory that you and I will get one day. Ask yourself, is Jesus alone your strength and satisfaction? Are you finding joy in his salvation 
no matter what, like Habakkuk. And daily preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Let's pray. Jesus, you and you alone are worthy of following after. God, we so often have questions, and I know we often don't understand why suffering happens. We often have the same question, like how can you be good and fully sovereign? God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to where we find satisfaction in you, to where our questions begin to fade away, and we simply trust and rest and worship, knowing that one day it will all be worth it. One day when we see you face to face, we will be made like you. And the suffering and pain of this world will seem like a distant bad dream. Because it will all be worth it. As 10,000, 10 million, 10 billion years from now, we will be singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The one who saved us. The one who rescued us. The one who crushed Satan's head. The one who defeated death with death. Jesus, let us look to you. I pray that we would daily preach to ourselves. Not the gospel of the world. We wouldn't daily preach to ourselves Fox News. Or the president's words. Or some hope in this world. Or the stock market. Or our career. But Jesus, you, we would preach to ourselves the gospel of the cross and your resurrection. The gospel of what you have done and that one day you will come back in victory. Remind us of that, Jesus. Holy Spirit, remind us of that. Soak it deep within our hearts. That we would leave this place and our hearts would sing with confidence that we are new and cared for. In Jesus' name, amen.